We're going to start the program today with Laurel Tooby, Managing Partner of Supernode Ventures. Laurel, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. Uh, it's pronounced Laurel Toby, by the way. Toby, okay. Yes. I'm surprised our paths haven't crossed until now. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about your investing focus. How big is the fund? What size investments are you making? Let's get to know one another here in the uh, forum. It sounds great. Um, well, first, let me start off by saying uh, I'm a founder first, so I can tell you, I'd like to kind of frame the whole discussion since we have time with how I started out as an investor, if that's okay. Absolutely. Perfect. Anything that helps uh, us get to know you. Yes, yes. So I started out as a founder, and before that, I was in journalism as a, uh, as a writer and editor. Um, I wrote for everywhere from Business Week to, um, you know, Crane's New York Business to Glamour Magazine. And while I was working as a journalist, I started a cocktail party basically to meet guys um, because I was, uh, it was before Tinder existed or anything like that. And so you had to still meet people in real life. <laughs> so I started this cocktail party, and the party evolved into a massive community of journalists, media professionals, everyone from advertising agency people to people in sales and marketing at media companies to um, journalists such as yourself. And uh, the party could have just ended like that, like it's just a nice little cocktail party. But I had something inside of me that was entrepreneurial, and I started thinking of these parties as a focus group with my customers. So I started asking people, what can I offer you that you would pay for what kinds of products and services do you need? And uh, what can I provide for you outside of this cocktail party? The party was a magical place where people were finding jobs. They were finding boyfriends and girlfriends. They were making true, deep friendships. There are people who are now close friends who have remained in touch for all these years due to the cocktail party. There are babies because of our cocktail parties. So. People told me, well, I could use jobs, I could use education, I could use health insurance. There were all kinds of things that journalists needed. And so I started offering those things. I created one of the first websites for media people ever in the United States or possibly in the world. It's called MediaBistro.com. Uh, it went online in 1996, and it's still around. It got sold a few times, um, and it's still out there. So. The, the website uh, went up live in 1996. I grew it to um, multiple uh, millions of people using it, and uh, we had 40 employees. And then I sold it in 19, 2007. I can't believe it's so long ago. And uh, basically, uh, I owned 64% of the company. I sold it for $23 million, and today, um, I now took some of that capital and began investing in tech, and now I'm doing my first, uh, basically my first uh, institutional fund. So that's kind of a little bit of background. So what, um, what are the specifics of the Supernode Ventures Fund? How big is it? Who else is involved? What's the, what's the context? Okay, so the fund itself is a pre-seed fund. 
we are investing in pre-seed, so very early stage companies. Sorry, I had to move <laughs> into another room of my office. Um, uh, it's a huge snowstorm here today, so we're, you know, we're kind of dealing with it uh, the best we can. Um, so it's a pre-seed fund, and it deals with um, basically the very, very early stages of tech. Um, we're looking at B2B, enterprise, FinTech, um, some consumer, but not a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I have a partner. Her name is Jenny Friedman. She worked at mm -hmm. ENIAC Venture prior to this. And, yeah, so that's, those are the kind of the, that's the, the overview. What about geography? Are you investing in, in any particular geography? Do you have um, specifics about you have to be three miles away from your companies and stuff like that? No, I, I don't think we have a geographic um, focus. I think we're definitely most interested in East Coast because we can affect the companies that way and we can help the companies. So one of the main things about our, um, about our venture firm is that we actually help our companies. We have dinner parties and events that we do, and that's kind of something I was really good at when I was a founder, and so I brought that uh, skill set to venture. You don't see a lot of venture uh, venture uh, firms our size that are doing so many events and so many high-value uh, networking connections for their founders. They're too busy running around, but we find a way to do both. And what um, can you double-click down on what kinds of companies you like to invest in? What are you looking for? What uh, you know? If some examples of what you've invested in, and how do you? analyze what you're investing in. Okay, that's like four questions, Ramana. So which one do you yes. want me to start with? <laughs> Let's start with what What are you looking for right now? We're in the beginning of 2018. What types of companies would catch capture your fancy aligned with the investment pieces that you've created? Okay, so right now I'm looking for serial entrepreneurs, people who have already started a company successfully, like me, and who are starting their next company. It seems like it's an addiction for a lot of founders to start uh, multiple companies um, serially. So we're looking for serial entrepreneurs. We're looking for, it's probably easier for me to tell you what we're not uh, willing to do. We're not doing healthcare tech, we're not doing hardware, we're not doing a lot of ad tech or a lot of um, consumer, but um, we're not interested in things that take millions and millions of dollars to get to market. We want you to be able to build it. B2B SaaS, it sounds like, mostly. Pardon? You're mostly interested in B2B SaaS kind of stuff, yes? Yeah, I mean, we're very practical. Let's, let's, let's say this. You know, the West Coast is all about moonshots and, you know, the future Tesla and that sort of thing. That's all great, but for my for our first fund, we want to be able to make a, a you know make a return for our investors so that we can put our second fund together. So uh, <laughs> yeah, so I think um, we're probably going to err on the side of being a little more practical for this uh, for this first fund and not go for those moonshots. Although we love disruptive technology stuff that's not copycats. Um, yeah. Okay. Got it. So, uh, second question out of the four, what have you invested in? Give us an example or two, 
and tell us why you chose to invest in those. What were the specifics of those deals? Okay, so we are currently um, raising our fund. I'm, oh, I'm not allowed to say that. Well, we're about to close our first close of our fund. So we have, um, you know, we're just now looking at investments for that fund. But um, in my angel investing, you can see some indicators of companies that, you know, that I invested in personally that have been doing really well. Um, one of them is a company called AppBoy, which actually is marketing tech, but I did it, you know, five years ago. So, <laughs> so it, it wasn't quite as crowded as it is today. Um, and it's called AppBoy. It's, it's changed its name to Braze, B-R-A-Z-E. And it's basically software to help marketers reach out to their um, to their communities via um, via their via the app, right? So it's um, managing your community of users through your app better. So it's analytics. It started out as just doing one or two things, and they they had a wedge strategy. We're going to get in there. We're going to do one or two things really well, and then we're going to expand from there. And that works. That's one good example. Um, some of the companies, some of the other companies that I've invested in are, I mean, if you look on our website, supernode.vc, you can see a bunch of them. Um, another one is Credit Justo. It's a small business lender um, in Mexico, actually, and it helps uh, small businesses get access to capital, um, basically by uh, securitized debt. Um, so if you have a home, uh, but you know, you're, there are no, there are hardly any mortgages down in Mexico for small, um, you know, people with uh, small homes. So it's hard for them to crack open uh, access to capital for their businesses. So they tend to want um, to borrow against their homes. And so uh, Credit Justo allows them to do that in a quick, efficient manner. That's another okay. example. So, yeah. So there's there's like 22 companies. I don't know if you want me to go through all of them. <laughs> no, no, no. So uh, the question that I would like to follow up um, that explanation with is, um, what trends have you seen? Let's say in the last three months, you're, you're, you have a deal flow. What are the highlights of what you're seeing in that deal flow? Uh, there's a lot of um, – here's what I'm noticing. I'm noticing a lot of companies that are – disrupting companies that are already out there. So, you know, 10 years ago, you didn't have uh, Ticketmaster and StubHub and all these. And now, not only do you have those, but now those are considered old school, old technology, legacy, right? And so what we're seeing are software companies that are the new kids on the block that want to disrupt those companies mm -hmm. that, are, that were out there just 10 years ago. So, I see the path of innovation moving quicker and quicker, right? Um, so you're not going to wait 25 years to launch another Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster will be disrupted now, right? Mm -hmm. Stop having mm -hmm. all these others. Um, and so the incumbents have to look over their shoulders or they have to act, acquire these companies that are coming, that are up and coming right. uh, faster and faster because – And modernize their technology, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's Moore's law, right? So things yeah. are moving faster, and I'm noticing that already. I'm, I'm kind of shocked at some of the companies that are coming in here, and they're saying we're disrupting, you know, Ticketmaster of all things. Um, and you know, 
you have to really take a look at them because they might just do that, right? They might mm -hmm. do it and you won't be part of it. Well, and it's a it's an interesting um, way to go to market because there is already a product out there that is, you know, entrenched, but there is already budget, there is already a whole organization around it. So when people want to go into something similar, there is, you know, the disruption process, the cycle of disruption is, is a known cycle of disruption. How do you, if you have something better, it's a matter of convincing the market that you have something better, but there is already awareness about the needs, the pain point, and all of these things. You don't have to establish that pain point again. Well, not necessarily because, you know, a lot of people think, all right, this is, it's done, right? Ticketing is false because Ticketmaster is so big and Subhub is so big and, you know, all these companies are so large, right? So there's actually a bias to say, you know, hey, that's all. Of course solved. there's a bias. So that's why you need a go-to-market strategy that, that can effectively dislodge the whole ecosystem around it, the people who would put their tickets, sell their tickets through Ticketmaster, you have to convince them to get on your platform and so forth. But but people do understand that they have to sell tickets online and that is one of the ways they, you know, get people to their shows and concerts and games and so forth. So so that's True. understanding. When Ticketmaster started that understanding they had to create. Yeah. And and then there's then there's disruption of um, industries that previously hadn't been disrupt disrupted before. So there's still room out there for software and insurance tech and real mm -hmm. estate tech yeah. and, you know, there, there are all kinds of areas that still, and ag tech, there's still um, room for new, new people, new companies to come up and solve problems there. So that's exciting yeah. too. So we're, we're just putting our fingers out there, our tentacles out there and trying to find all kinds of um, founders who come from those industries, who understand those industries, and who are working hard to, uh, to make change. How do you process the current investment climate where capital is moving further and further upstream? How does a pre-seed investor like yourself mitigate the Series A gap? Uh, when you say mitigate the Series A gap, I don't quite understand what you mean. I think it's very. Let me explain what I mean. Um, so, if you look at the numbers, 2013 onwards, the number of seed investments have been huge. You know, I think the 2013 number was 70,000, and since then it's 50 to 70,000 seed investments. And by seed, I mean the entire spectrum from pre-seed seed, post-seed, pre-series A, all of that falls in, in the general umbrella of seed. Um, but the series A number or the venture financing number still remains pretty constant. It's about 1,200 to 1,500. So there is clearly a big drop-off. Um, now, if you've invested in, in a pre-series A company, you obviously have, you know, the level of risk is higher. So what is your strategy? You haven't yet done this because you're still in, about to do your first fund, but what, have you thought about it, how you're going to navigate this? Um, I mean, we have, I have done it personally. I, every company I invested in of the 20, yeah. yeah, the 22 companies that I, you know, I created a portfolio and a track record of 22 companies, 
all of them are pre, all of them are very early stage. Um, some of them are pre-seed. And so um, I plan to, to take my learnings and the lessons that I learned mm -hmm. uh, through those investments and the mistakes I made and basically do a better job on my first institutional fund. And so that's why what we're doing in our portfolio construction is we're looking at companies that have valuations of lower than $5 million. Uh, valuation. So we have to be valuation disciplined, and we're offering our limited partners access to the pro rata rights, meaning we're giving them access to invest as the winners come out of that group. Now, you're going to have a lot of failures, um, mm -hmm. and of course, you expect that, but there, if, we, if we do it right, and I think we are going to do it right, um, we'll have a, a huge number of companies that are going on to their Series A and beyond. Um, and we're going to offer our, co our uh, LPs access to those companies to invest in them. So mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure if I answered your question or if I understood your question. Well, there, there are you know, several ways of answering the question that I've heard people answer who are doing pre-seed funds or seed funds even. Um, one way to do it is pro rata participation, and it's very difficult for small funds to do pro-rata participation for if you have five rounds of funding before a real Series A, um, you know, you dilute the company hugely and it's very difficult for small funds to keep participating. Um, right. So, yeah. so, so that's where, where you're answering the question is that you're going to ask your limited partners to participate and that will, you know, give them some leverage there and, and that would be attractive for them. The other answer I hear a lot is the pre-seed funds um, are perfectly okay with selling out um, to later stage funding. They don't want to wait till the exit. They're okay with exiting as long as they get a good multiple, um, even at Series A or Series B, and that is another way of mitigating. Um, and actually, this is a good segue into the question I have about what your impression is of unicorn mania. Again, as a pre-seed investor, you could get buried under later stage liquidation preferences. How do you protect yourself? And I think some of the questions that you're answering are similar, um, you know, similar strategies to, uh, to, to protect yourself from, you know, if you have a winner in your portfolio and it starts to really, you know, get big valuations and then those valuations come with big, with terms that are not, not attractive, that's where the early stage investors get really screwed, right? Oh, I agree, um, which is why it's really important that you stay close to those founders and be helpful to them so yeah. that you're given preferential treatment or at least uh, equal treatment as they as they raise more capital and perhaps you have to ask for warrants for advising or helping. Or, um, you know, you just have to uh, offer up your pro rata rights to your LPs and for your first fund, you're basically making more money for your investors um, than you are for yourselves in some ways. Um, but, you know, these are good problems to have as we invest in companies that succeed. And so we're going to make the decisions along the way that, um, that will determine, you know, where, where we go. I'm also not adverse to creating SPVs, you know, to invest mm -hmm. in pro rata, in the pro rata of these companies. Yep. So yeah, that's another that strategy way, that we're seeing a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So last so, question, no. uh, Laurel. What um, what do you think of this particular uh, phenomenon? One of my observations is that we're in 2018, beginning of 2018. Lots of stuff have already been built. Nowadays, there aren't so many wide open opportunities with multi-billion dollar TAMs, but there are many niche opportunities. And some of these businesses need to be built for very small amounts of capital, maybe one or two million dollars sold for 10 to 15 million dollars. Some will be even smaller, invest to 5,500K and sell for five to 10 million dollars. Do you have appetite for these kinds of investments? As long as the founder is not um, trying to create a lifestyle business that they want to hold on to forever, and they're willing to give their investors an exit, then absolutely. Because that's one of the reason that, reasons that we have to be valuation disciplined, is because mm -hmm. just in yeah. case that happens, right? So if we put in um, at the five million or four or three million valuation, and the found, <clears throat> I encourage the founder to, you know, there's no reason why you shouldn't sell quickly for 30 million, 40 million, 50 million. I make money that way. So does the founder yeah. actually. <clears throat> you know, when I, when I started my company, I only raised $500,000 from investors. And I sold yeah. for 23 million later, guess who made money? I did, and my investors, I didn't raise multiple rounds of capital. So these are some of the lessons that I bring to the table when I talk to founders, is there is another way. You do not have mm -hmm. to continuously raise capital. You can also um, raise a little bit, hit a certain point um, of value, and sell for 10, 20x, and not have to make it to $100 million in sales like so many of the other companies are trying to do. Yep. And how, um, just to get a sense, how uh, firm are you about your desire to invest only in founders who have done it before? Is that a written in stone or is that something that is somewhat of a guidance? Look, um, we've got some great investors in our fund. One of them is Chris Daka from Lowercase. And one of the, he's also an advisor to the fund. And one of the, the great pieces of advice he gave us is to be flexible as possible and not make any hard and fast rules. So we're taking his advice we are not uh, stuck on any hard and fast rule. Um, and we're going to be as flexible as possible. So yeah, we don't, we don't just want to invest in serial entrepreneurs, but I will say this, once you've been down the road uh, a couple of sure. times, you've learned so much. It really helps so much. feed your, no your success on no your next company. No question. And, and that's, uh, you know, our community is full of first-time entrepreneurs and the learning curve for them is incredibly steep, which is what we are trying to help them for years and years mitigate is, you know, there is a certain amount of stuff that you have to master if you want to navigate this game of startups reasonably and without losing your shirt and without uh, blowing up. <laughs> that, um, yeah. You know, it's not easy to do. At the same time, you know, there have been very successful first-time entrepreneurs, and we know so many of them, both yeah. so many yeah. of them who are so prominent, and also so many of them we know personally. So yeah. being flexible have, um, is good. We have about 40 points of reference that we look for in terms of uh, investment criteria. 
Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of it's just in my head, but um, some of the signaling that's, that makes me excited is when a founder really, really knows the space that they're going after. I mean, of, yeah. course, of course, if they're an entrepreneur who's done it before, that's a huge, great signal. If they have technical uh, expertise or technical co-founders, that's excellent. If they've already done customer research and actually um, outreach to customers, because it's all about the customer, right? You can have the best idea in the world, but if it's just your idea and you haven't really tested it and if you're fearless about testing, you know, there's a lot of people who, who are afraid that their idea will be, will be killed, right? So they, they're so attached to their idea that they're, they're afraid to actually test it with customers. Well, that's something you have to get over. So they have to be fearless. They have to have gone through strife before. I'm very, very, um, I'm not very excited about founders who, you know, had it easy all their lives and were handed everything, and so they've never really been through tough times. So I really like to over-index on founders who've gone through something um, horrible <laughs> in their personal or professional lives. I, I want them to be stress-tested, and I want them to be people who will never give up, right? It's not mm -hmm. the same as being, um, uh, you know, being somebody who's bullheaded, but it's somebody who's flexible and yet will never give up. There's, there's, you know, there's a fine line there, if you know, if you know what I mean. Resilience. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your insights, Laurel. I know you have a